0: As we finish up uh, Philippians chapter 3 this morning, there are a lot of things to be said, and we won't certainly get to them all. I, I, I promised the guys who are going to be speaking that I would get to the end of chapter 3. So let me just say sort of. Okay, we're going we're gonna to touch on some things, but we're not going to go very deeply. So in your growth groups, I trust that you will wrestle... Some of this stuff to the ground. The first part of chapter 3, Paul has told his readers that religion won't make any difference in right standing with God. Good works, self-righteousness amount to nothing in earning right standing with God. God, right standing comes by faith, and let me define faith as active believing, okay? I think sometimes we think of faith past tense. I I trusted in Christ back then, and I exhibited faith then, and so that is what faith is, and that most certainly is involved in coming to Christ, but faith is much more than that. It's active believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for right standing with God, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but right living in him as well. The word the Bible uses is righteousness, and it really means being right. Paul makes it clear that the pursuit of knowing Christ is not passive. One of the great dilemmas in our culture is that you know, we talked about it last week, but there is this kind of let go and let God philosophy. Because we, we follow Christ in faith, it's his responsibility to make us godly. Will he do that? No. He asks us, he offers for us to follow him, but it is our choice. He will never override our will. Active obedience, according to Paul, is aggressive obedience. Now, let me define that a little bit again. It's aggressive obedience. The word he used to describe his pursuit of knowing Christ was the exact same word he used to describe his pursuit and persecution of the church. It's how hard he's saying he's pursuing. It actually consumed him before he was In Christ, he pursued the church to destroy it, to destroy it, and he describes that pursuit, and that is the exact same word he's using here when he says, I pursue Christ. Now, we're gonna jump in in the middle of a thought because I'm gonna run out of time. If you need to catch up, I, I encourage you to listen to the messages the last two or three weeks on Philippians 3. It'll lead you up to this point. Oh, Who cares? Let's read the whole chapter 3. I have a lot of time after today. (laughs) Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 21. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard. It's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had gained, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Father, would you open our ears and our eyes to hear? Would you let us hear what you have to say, not just with our ears and eyes, but with our hearts our souls. May you unlock your word for us because it's only you who can do so. Help my words not to get in the way, but if possible to help open up this passage in some way that the lights may go on. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A relationship with Christ doesn't begin and end with us recognizing who it is. It begins there. It happened to Paul on the road to Emmaus when his name was still Saul, and his whole life changed. It went upside down or inside out. His life changed forever as he responded by faith to who Jesus is and what he has done. If Jesus is who he says he is, and he's done what he has done, that the Bible declares that he died for our sins, does That change things. Well, that was half-hearted. You double darn betcha. Is that the saying? You bet it does. You better double down on this truth, if it's true. But that was, in fact, only a beginning. And something has happened in the Western culture, and I don't mean by that everything west of Mississippi. (laughs) I mean, in the western kind of European modernized culture, something has happened to the gospel, and I think maybe it is because of a methodology in which we share the gospel. We want everything quick, right? So we needed a quick way to share the gospel. Here it is, four steps, seven laws, da-da-da-da-da. Pray this prayer you're in. And in my experience, and I've used that very often, and lives have been changed, but there also is this sense in which we pray a prayer, done. That's not what Paul is describing here. It's only the beginning that resulted in a total shift in the direction of Paul's life, a total refocusing, a total letting go. And a total picking up something new. He began following Christ as he met him, but realized that getting to know him was now the most important thing in his life. Do you remember when you met your spouse and that was so true? That's the illustration, that's what Paul's saying. I became enamored with Christ. And being enamored with Him, I'm pursuing Him. And the more I know Him, the more enamored I am with Jesus Christ. Nothing compares with knowing Him. And I will settle for nothing but knowing Him more. i got to tell you, I remember the first time I saw Linda. And I'm not telling you about it. (laughs) But that changed. My life's priority. We live clear in the north north side of Spokane and this was like a long time ago and my mom said, why would you drive clear to the valley to see her? (laughs) And I remember this plain as day. Have you seen her? (laughs) But it's not enough to know about. It's It's necessary to know. Yes? Yes. And that's what Paul is describing in his pursuit of Jesus the Christ. All other aspects of his life became subject to this one thing, this one thing I pursue, knowing him. And he talks about how he goes about that one pursuit. He Closes this section with a description of one thing that he does, but it's in three parts. It's all part of one process and one priority, but it's three parts. If you were, were here last Sunday, I promised you a three part, three step part to become per, a perfect Christian. Right? That's what Paul says. Now, don't throw books at me till you hear me out. It's a three. It's three steps to becoming a perfect Christian. Okay. I'll talk about the perfect part a little later. He uses that term in this passage, but we have to understand what he's saying. If ever Paul was practical, this is it. Hear me now. Paul's practical, but if ever he was practical, this is it. If we want to grab hold of or appropriate or put to use all that we have in Christ, and that's what Paul is saying, I want, to, I want to grab onto what I've been given in Christ. Here's perhaps the best counsel in the New Testament Step one, forgetting what is behind, straining forward, and pressing on. I like to alliterate things so I can try and remember them, which is harder and harder in my life. But the first thing is forgetting, forgetting what lies behind. I got to tell you, I'm going to spend some time here. I'm going to park here a little bit, and then I'm going to speed through the last half, and Neil can clean up the mess next week. (laughs) I think this first admonition is pretty huge. huge. The first word translated forget might better be translated to disregard. We can't just forget. How many of you can you forget your past? You can't. There are things in our past that we can't, and the truth is that we shouldn't because there are lessons to be learned. We can't just have our memories wiped clean. But our past sure doesn't happen to own us. In fact, when God says, I will remember their sins no more, I don't know how often I've heard people say, well, God forgets. When did, when did God get senile? He doesn't forget them. He can't forget. He's omniscient, which means he knows everything, past, present, and future. Who said amen? Oh, yeah, my Pentecostal pastor brother. Can you school these people a little bit? We'll have a class on amens and hand-raising. What it means is that he chooses to not take them into account. He chooses not to look at us in light of our past, or hold them to our account. He disregards them because the blood of Jesus Christ wipes it clean, and so God looks at us and doesn't hold our sin to our account. That's what it means. He chooses to disregard it. Now, let's be honest. Paul had a pretty colorful past, right? Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He was good at it. He practiced. He was good at being bad on the side of being self-righteous. He was trying to earn his favor with God and outright sin. He was a persecutor of the church. He was involved in putting believers in prison. He was involved in their murder. Paul was good at being bad being religious. But he couldn't forget all that. In fact, he just recounted it, didn't he? He gave us his resume. So he didn't forget it. He knew it. He was choosing to put the past where it belonged, in the past. And by faith, that's what God asks us to do because he dealt with it. Now, let me tell you this. It's a lack of faith to keep dwelling there. It's disbelieving who God is. It's not active faith. And by the way, God knew it as well. That's the point of the gospel in this letter. It's that who we were is gone. Wow, that got an amen. When we came to Christ in faith, his blood took away our sin. We become new creations, as we talked about last week. But my question is this. While all of that is theologically true, how much and how often do our pasts control us? Okay, I hear by the groaning and moaning. We've hurt others. And others have hurt us. We can choose to let that own us, or we can choose to disregard it. We can't forget it. While it plays a part in who we are, it certainly doesn't dictate who we are now or who we are becoming. We so often let what we have done or what's been done to us to dictate our present and control our futures. Now, I know how hard that is, especially when you're talking about abuse or those kinds of things. We're going to talk about that a little more. Or we succumb to others who try and make our past control us. Even if we let them go, there are others who don't want to let them go. And they always carry a mirror around. (laughs) There are two perspectives on this as well. First, the positive. As with Paul, there are positive things in our past that can hold us captive. I want to say this real clearly. We never retire as believers. We, ti- we retire in terms of careers or jobs, but we never retire as disciples of Jesus Christ. The other thing is we never stay stagnant. You can't stay stagnant. We never sit still and say, well, that's good enough. That, I, I'm satisfied with where I am in my pursuit of Christ. Because if we're satisfied, you know what you're doing? Losing ground. You can't ever stay neutral in this pursuit of Christ. uh, Our greatest successes can be our undoing on anything new that God wants to accomplish in us or through us. That was not Paul's attitude or mindset. By this time in his walk with God, he'd done a few things. He knew a few things because he'd done a few things. You guys need to watch more TV. That's off a of commercial. <laughs> Even those can hold us up. Paul said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing forward, remembering what God has done. Uh, when we do a membership class here, we recount the story of when the church started. And many of you were here, and you remember it, and I love the story. But guess what? Yesterday's news. In Fact. It's 25-year-old news. Sometimes we need to let go of our past to enjoy what new things God wants to do. Because no matter how great they were, they don't compare it with what God has in mind as we continue to go closer and closer to him. I've recommended this book, so I'll do it again because I know that very few of you do your assignments. If you were students in my English class, you would have failed. Henry Cloud, and you know that name if you've heard the book, Boundaries. Henry Cloud wrote a book called Necessary Endings. And the premise of the book is that in order to have a new chapter in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, sometimes we have to let an old chapter close. So there are positive things that we sometimes have to let go of. Because sometimes we keep on a returning to them, the glory days. I remember we talk a lot about and when guys who were in our ministry at Gonzaga call us, oh, those were the best. And every time we try and reproduce that, you know what happens? Nothing. <laughs> it was God's movement in a three-year chapter when hundreds of college kids' lives were changed by six young men. have to let some stuff go the other thing is there's a negative sign of this we all have some junk in our trunk right you have anything you've ever done or said that you'd like to undo (laughs) i didn't get an amen but i got a painful groan right there if we could turn the calendar or clock back to redo some things We would all have those things we'd undo, right? Don't leave me hanging. We don't have to list what they are because we all know what they are. We rehearse them probably on a much too regular basis. We can't undo them, so how do you deal with them? Can't change them. First one is this you confess. Confession simply means to admit the truth. It's to agree with God that it's wrong. It's to admit that it was sin. 1 John 1, 9 and 10, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Confession is the first step to being unlocked from the past of our own making. And what does confession mean? Admitting, agreeing with God. The second step is repentance. It's the next step from confession. I think it's probably part of authentic confession. Excuse me, it's turning away from by whatever means necessary used to control us. I think that's the process that Paul is describing in these verses. He's turned from his past and he's not running from it. He's pursuing and anticipating and participating in something different. He doesn't have time or energy to be stuck in the past. He's pursuing Christ with all the energy he has. The second thing is there's stuff that others did. There are things in our past that we have and had no control over. There are abusive situations and they're coming up more and more that are horribly ugly. There are things that people did that we can't control. There are things that just happened. We can't undo them, so we simply have to submit them to the sovereignty and goodness of God. We we choose by faith to trust the God who's really in charge. And guess what? That's faith. But it takes tremendous faith. God, I trust you. You know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. How many of you would love her life? How many of you would love her life for for your children or your grandkids? Broken neck? Cancer? Two or three times now? Stroke? And yet one of the most influential people in our lifetime, to the glory of God. Our pasts are in our past. We have a choice how to deal with our past, how we deal with our past, but we don't always have a choice how other people choose to deal with our past. How many people do you suppose continue to bring up Paul's former life to him and to others? Hey, Paul's coming to your town. Watch out for him. He kills Christians. You can't trust him. He's sneaking up on you. He's going to turn you in. He's not really who he says he is. We most certainly have to deal with our past honestly and accurately, but be careful of those who don't want your past to be in your past. They can and often will enslave you. Yes? Yes? Sometimes putting the past behind means you have to unhook from some people who don't want to let you unhook from your past. Paul says, "Forgetting those things that are behind." The first thing we must do if we're going to lay hold of all that God has for us is to follow Christ, in following Christ is to forget our past. As parents you get to sit around the table and find out what your kids really did when you weren't looking. (laughs) There are all kinds of things that could take us out if we let them take it out. Dr. Willie Jennings says this. This is a great statement. We who follow Jesus are working in wounds, working with wounds, and working through Wounds. True that, huh? And we're doing it together. First thing we get to do if we're going to pursue God is forget our past. The second thing is that we're going to forge forward. The word here for press is to move forward forcibly. It literally is to stretch out and reach forward, to strain towards like a runner straining and leaning for the tape in a race. It's not running from our past, it's straining forward in our ongoing walk of faith in order to experience all of God wants, what wants us, God wants us to do. What God wants to do, it's almost worn out in us. And through us. How many of you know who Roger Bannister is? You guys got to read more. Who was Roger Bannister? He broke the four-minute mile barrier, considered to be impossible at one time. The first race that two men broke the four-minute mile was against Roger Bannister and? None of you will know this name. And this guy led up until the last few yards of the race. They're running. And this guy realizes he's about to beat Roger Bannister and he's going to break the record again. And he hears the cheering and he looks over his shoulder only to have Roger Bannister pass him and beat him in the last few steps. The lesson is don't look back, forgetting what is behind. You press on. Had that guy been focused on the tape, he never would have lost that race. Forging forward, focusing on what lies ahead. The goal is the prize of the high calling or upward calling of God, and there are all kinds of people who disagree on what that means. Neil will clean it up next week. Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it is. There's no small amount of discussion in it, but but I believe the focus is clearly on the glory of eternity with Christ, whatever that entails. There are rewards, there are presence, not presence, but presence as in being with. There's the, the presence of being with Christ. There is rewards for what we've done in our body. But the big thing is knowing him in his fullness. being with him in that place in which he is preparing for us, knowing him as Jesus prayed in the glory that he had before he came to earth. I want them to see the glory I have that I had with you before I came here. Again, that was true of Christ as well. It says of him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You notice it doesn't say for the fun of the cross, he went to the cross. For the joy set before him, which was what? Returning to glory, being with his father. And by the way, having us join him in the place that he prepares for us. He could endure all of this life had to offer, which we have read about in Philippians and the cross because of the joy set before him. How significant is our past compared to our future? How significant is our present compared to our future? Paul said in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 18, "'For I consider that the sufferings of this present time "'are not worth comparing.'" with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we go through here is small potatoes compared to eternity. Now, it doesn't feel that way right now, does it? Many of us, many of you are going through things that hurt so bad you think, I don't know if I can make it through this. And it probably won't all make sense until we step into eternity. There is a future that if we allow it to capture our attention puts all of this life, good, bad, and ugly, in perspective. I shared with you that the title of this message is Becoming the Perfect Christian. Paul uses the term perfect twice in these verses, although it doesn't show up so well in English. Where do you see it? Verse 12, you're better than the first service. They all sat there. You see it in verse 12. Where else do you see it? That verse 15 that's translated mature is the same word. The point is not the arrival at absolute perfection. It's not that we get there and we no longer sin. We can cease from our striving. The idea is also translated, or some translate it this way, accomplishing the task or meeting the goal. Paul's not relaxing in any way, shape, or form. What he is saying is he's doing all that he can to allow Christ to be all that he is in him in the process of God preparing him for eternity. He's submitting to and participating in the process of being conformed to the image of his Savior, It harkens back to the verses we looked at last week. Paul wants to lay hold of what Christ has laid hold of him for. Now, I want you to know that maturity looks different for each one of us in some ways. We don't all have the same calling. We don't all have the same mission or ministry. I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata. Different ones of us are called to different things. We have brothers and sisters who will literally lose their heads for Christ today. I'm not looking forward to going there or that happening. But it's their journey to enter into the sufferings of Christ and to know him. And many of them probably who suffer for the sake of the gospel know him in a way that we may never know him. In fact, if we pray for revival in our culture, we may be praying for persecution the Christian life is a cruciform life It's if our identity is other than the cross of Christ if our drive is anything other than knowing him, if our focus is anything other than our future with him we will never really know what it means to be in him we'll remain immature, stuck in our sin in the sense that it will continue to control our lives and we live according to our flesh. One of the great tragedies, again, of Western Christianity is that so many of us stubbornly maintain immaturity. We want to grow, just not very much. And certainly not if it costs us what we dearly love. Unfortunately, to a great extent, that may be the norm for Christianity in the West. George Barna calls it pagan Christianity. It's a great book by that title. Others have called it unbelieving believers. Dr. Guyvett, whom you have known and has been here a number of times, calls it believing atheism. The writer of the Hebrews told his readers, you know, it's really time you grow up you love talking about the basics of the faith, but aren't too excited about much else. We can't be sure exactly who Paul is talking about that live as enemies of the cross. Some say it's the Judaizers, some say it's the opposite of, it's those who philosophically in Philippi said, well, you can be spiritual, but it doesn't affect the way you live. You can live any way you want because the body and the soul are distinct. But in the context here, it includes those who aren't pursuing Christ. They aren't following him. They aren't walking in obedience. The definition of a disciple is a follower. And what he's saying, they are enemies of the cross of Christ because they follow their own desires. So often our own passions, our own cravings, our own desires supersede us entering in to taking up our own cross. Christianity is based on the cross of Christ and his suffering, but it's also that we take up our crosses and die to ourselves and follow him. And those who get it, get it he says those who are mature get this and those who get it get it and won't train it change it trade it for anything else in the world and then he says those who don't God will reveal it if this is my interpretation interpretation If they're maturing. Here's my counsel, as Paul says. First of all, hold on to what you know. Don't let anybody bump you off the truth. Because in our culture and all world, truth is relative. If you don't hang on to the truth of God's word, life will spin out of control. I promise. Don't let anybody steal the truth from you. And secondly, follow someone who follows God. That's what Paul says in the following verses. If you, if you want to mature, pr- pursue Christ like I did, like you saw me do and like I just told you to do. Pursue Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Forgetting, forging, focusing. Pursue Christ that way. Follow me in the way I follow Christ, then you'll grow up. And by the way, you can also follow those who live this way like we taught. If you want to mature or pursue Christ, surround yourself by those who are running hard after God. What I see with people who often are stepping into sin is they leave their friends who are pursuing God and find some who aren't. And will justify the way they want to live. In fact, don't just pursue like these people pursue. Pursue God with them. Find ones who are ahead of you and are still running hard and hit your wagon to them. If you want to mature, run with those who are and are continuing to mature. One of the things that we always talk about in snow skiing is if you want to get better, ski with somebody who's better until you get old. <laughs> My son teaches snow skiing this way. People say, how'd you learn to ski? He said, Follow me and keep up. you either learn to ski or you get a toboggan ride to the hospital. You want to stay the way you are, ski with bad guys like me. If you want to mature, run with those who are and are continuing to mature and are not satisfied in their faith. You want to stay where you are, hang out with people who are satisfied. But you will never know the power and the joy and the peace that passes understanding because you will never need it. If you want God to bless your life, hang with those who tell you you're okay wherever you are and you walk with God. If you want just enough of Jesus to keep you out of hell, hopefully that might work for you. There'll be less guilt, less holy discontent, but there'll be much less if any spiritual maturing going on. And there'll be little, if any, spiritual reward when he shows up again to take us home. The Christian life is the cruciform life, It's the way of the cross. The enemies of the cross live consumed by their own agendas and passions. And it can be those sitting in the pews. It can be us saying we believe in Jesus. We just don't really, really, really want to go to the cross and die to ourselves with him. That's how we can live as enemies of the cross. I want to move very quickly to verse one of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As we close this chapter, and Linda and I close this chapter of our lives here with you, that's a great way to end. Focused on what God says. We've had 25 wonderful years here. We've loved watching many of you grow and grow up in the Lord. We've participated in baptisms and weddings and funerals. One of the things that Linda and I often talk about is we get to sit in the front during communion and watch stories walk forward. Some great stories. Some very glad to forget the past (laughs) because God worked in lives. Most of all, we've loved opening God's word with you here in this family room and in small groups and watching it change so many of your lives and then watching it change lives that you come in contact with. I've often said it of you, and those who have been guest speakers here often comment that you're a great congregation to preach to because you love God's word you love to hear it you love to get hear god's word and we have loved watching it work in your lives and ours together much more than that you're a great group of people to do life and ministry with i love to do fun stuff i love to hunt i'd, I'd like to start killing but i love to hunt I love to ski even slowly, although that's not quite as much fun. But I'll tell you what I love to do. I love to be in growth groups with you people and wrestle with God. The measure of a ministry is not a building or an organization, it's the people, it's the impact of the gospel. Paul said this, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Those are pretty good words from the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to close with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that we don't have to worry about our past. you got that covered. Thank you so much that we have a future that is secure in you because you've got that covered. (laughs) And you have our present covered as well. Father, I pray that you will cause us to understand the privilege and the value of pursuing you and knowing you through what you allow and bring our ways. I pray that we can learn what it means to forget what is behind, to forge forward and to focus on eternity with you. That we may become complete in you. Accomplishing what you have designed us individually but more than individually corporately because it's for that that you have put us together thank you for the privilege of being here with these dear ones thank you for this long extended season of our lives and I thank you for what you have for them and what you have for us because by faith we trust you in Jesus the Christ our Savior's name we pray amen